This is the Dear Warren Podcast. Feel comfortable? Yeah. All right. So I believe it, it, yeah, it's recording now. And I'm going to say welcome to Dear Warren Podcast. Uh, For any new listeners, any returning listeners, thank you and welcome. Uh, Backseat Parenting, um, advice, stories, parables, principles that we hope to pass down to Warren one day. But most importantly, um, he's upstairs commenting from above. And also here, uh, we just try to have fun. And my guest this week is my very good friend, Ben Bettenbender. How are you, sir? I'm good, Ak. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. It's great. And thank you for braving the, 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 it's a bit of a soggy weather today, more of a rainy Sunday. I will tell you, I arrived back from Ireland yesterday. This is an exact continuation of the weather (laughs) I had there. You know, basically they keep talking about, uh, when, when you're out there, they talk about how you get four seasons in a day, Uh but the four seasons, they do get four seasons in a day, but all their seasons are wet and rainy. I mm-hmm. mean, so it, it's hard to tell sometimes. I mean, it's a couple of degrees difference in temperature, but, you know, today's not too cold. But the overcast, the rain, it's just like being back in Letterkenny. So. Do you think that develops their character or... Oh, like crazy. I was sitting in a, in a bar midweek. We were having one of our long days that extended, uh, that extended well past... Um, uh, our our actual work time and we were we were in the hotel bar and we were still talking about um work stuff and uh, i'm looking up as i'm kind of getting ready to you know select something i'm looking up at all the the whiskeys and things that you can't get here right and one one bottle struck me right away it's called writer's tears so <laughs> i felt like that's the quintessential wow. irish you know whiskey it's you know it, it's it's kind of tells the whole story of their temperament and how they react to the to the weather and everything else so i i, I thought that you know yeah it, it does affect them uh great folks though you know it's always it's always terrific going out there did you have that I did not. Mm. I saw it after I'd already gotten a 12-year-old single malt Irish whiskey called mm. The Irishman, just kind of mm-hmm. simply named, and that was just glorious. So I got a, another one, and I brought back, this is, this is for you, because uh, you I, I know you're a connoisseur. So uh, I dabble. Every, every time I come back, I bring back, as I, as I mentioned to you last time you were over, I, I bring back, uh, you know, an Irish whiskey that mm-hmm. I, I can't really find too easily in the States or I can't find at all here in the States. And uh, I was in the Dublin airport yesterday and uh, in the Dublin airport, they really know how to sell whiskey, right? So you go up to the stands and they have the bottles out there and, and it's just like, let's start pouring. And so it's a little early for me. It's still, you know, it's like 10 a.m. So I I try to keep it just on a conversational level. But then this this, uh, woman who's talking to me about the whiskey starts talking about the peatish quality in the finish. I said, okay, you got to stop. I, I don't know. What do you what do you mean by that? And she says, well, we fire it with peat. There's actually a whole kind of school of Irish whiskey making that involves you know, finishing it with mm. a, a peat fire. And she says, you'll get a very smooth initial taste, but as you get that finish on the back of your tongue, you're going to taste the peat. And I said, oh, okay, I got to try this. <laughs> and it was exactly as she had described. I mean, it started out ultra smooth as, mm-hmm. as Irish whiskey always does. And then it suddenly, this is going to sound like I'm knocking it, but you suddenly tasted, it was almost like dirt mm-hmm. on the, the back of your, your tongue, but it, it was glorious. I mean, I, I, I really, I really can't describe it. You'd have to try it, but 
you will try it. Awesome. I, I brought this back. It's called the Connemara. Mm-hmm. It's 12 year old single malt and it's a peated whiskey. And you know, this, you, you have to try it to really understand it, but it was a lot of fun. Warren, you can try this in about 21 years. Uh, you're still sticking to what he's, he's transitioning <laughs> off a of formula right now. He'll have it in a bit, but as you should, you should know about your, your dad. He dabbles in a bit of, I do a bit more like bourbons. I think I came I over to your place one time and I showed you like one or one or two and you just went running with it and you totally surpassed what I, I, I knew or I was drinking with, with bourbon and you just really started introducing me to a lot of different ones as well. I, too. I don't know if that's true. You're being mm. humble, but nah. but yeah, I, I, I absolutely give you credit for kicking off the current sort of... What was that? You know, it was, I think it was Angel's Envy, I think it was. Angel's Envy, else. yeah. Angel's Envy. Uh, in fact, I, I was in, in Denver last year and uh, I, my wife's uh, sister and brother-in-law are out there and, uh, you know, they, they always take us out. They always show us a great time. I mean, you know, we we will fight over the checks once in a while, but usually they do something that's, you know, very indulgent when we come out. Mm-hmm. And so I said, listen, I'm not going to even, I'm not going to even fight with Jose over the, the dinner checks. I'm, I'm just going to go and get him a good bottle of bourbon. And so we went and we picked up uh, a bottle of Angel's Envy and, and you absolutely steered me to, <laughs> to this. You, you brought some over one night for one of our fight nights. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he he could not stop talking about it. I awesome. mean, Jose's a chatty guy. He's mm-hmm. he's like the sweetest. He's one of those people. You know, you spend half an hour with him, and you just feel like you've known him your whole life. I mean, he's really easy to get to know. He's he's really uh, uh, you know just very entertaining, very very dear guy. But he, I mean, we we the rest of the night was just every few minutes was interspersed with comments about the bourbon. I mean, he was, he was so excited about it. So I owe you not only for, you know, turning me onto it, but you know, for my being able to pass it on to no, my brother in as well. Man. Coming over and you, you showed me all these new, new ones. And I'm just like, Ben, like after like the fourth or fifth taste, I'm like, I can't give you, I can't give you a nice, you know, um, uh, base level judgment because I'm gone. Delicious. Yeah. Were you ever, uh, I, I know we started with bourbon. Were you ever a beer drinker? Oh, I drink beer. Yeah. I mean, I did. Uh, and, you know, on, honestly, I'm more red wine than anything else, right? So uh, I describe myself as, you know, an old Italian man, because when you grow up with an Italian mother, you <laughs> mm-hmm. feel Italian, right? Because mm-hmm. all the food, you know, the kitchen, everything, it's all, it's, it's, it's Italian. And, uh, you know, we always had the, you know, the, the bottle of red wine. And even as a little kid, I mean, I, I, you're wise not to let Warren start with the, you know, the Irish whiskey, the bourbon until he's a little older. So I can older. start with the red wine, in other words. But well, they kind of did in my family. <laughs> okay. They, they had tricks, <laughs> right? So they, they, they it, I kid you not, uh-huh. they would put a bowl in front of you and they would put some water in it and then they would pour some wine in it and then they would give you crumpled up pieces of Italian bread. And uh-huh. as this kids, you know, we're four or five years old and we would dip the uh, bread into the wine and water mixture and and eat that and it you know it it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I will say too you know I never kind of got into that phase when when I hit you know sixteen seventeen eighteen started going to parties where I started to try to outdo everybody in terms yeah. of drinking either. I mean I just felt kind of like you know it's just something you do. It it it. Uh, will Warren get blasted on on wine bread? I, I never got blasted. I never got blasted. I mean, they, they diluted it. But what you do is yes. you sort of develop a taste for it, and mm-hmm. and it felt like you were developing sort of a sense that this is kind of a normal thing, you know? It yeah, was, no, I, I'm only semi-busting your chops with that, because I did hear from, um, um, I think it was one of my college professors growing up, where 
uh, they traveled to France, and that's what the French would do. They exactly. would give, give to their children, or as as they're growing up, like good, like fifty fifty, like fifty water, fifty exactly. wine, exactly, just yeah. to start getting them used to it. And that was an Italian thing too. You know, both my uh, grandparents uh, came here from from Italy, from uh, Modena, which is you know in the north, and you know that that that's how the kitchen was run. So mm -hmm. you know it it. it you know, it started with red wine, but I mean, I enjoy beer, you know, uh, my wife and I'll, you know, always keep a little beer in the house. We always keep some wine in the house, but, uh, thanks to you, hmm. we, we now have a, a fairly respectable selection of, uh, of rye, right? I know I talked, talked to you about yes. the last time you were yes. over, I've really discovered rye in a big way, which is like, you start really getting into not just the taste of what you, you you discovered like the origins of it you got into like the process of how bit. it's made right a little bit yeah mm -hmm. you know uh, one of my trips I, I i've mentioned the ireland thing right so uh, i i have a i i work for prudential but mm -hmm. we have our development team out mm -hmm. in in donegal county in uh, letterkenny ireland and uh it, it's it's amazing you go out there and I mean, you were literally driving through these low, lush, green hills, farms everywhere. I mean, when I say farms everywhere, I mean, people's front yard, they have livestock in them. Mm -hmm. it, it's really not unusual to see a house, car, just like you do here, but you'll see eight or 10 sheep grazing in the front yard. Uh, so it's that kind of environment, feels very old Irish, feels very rural, and then you suddenly go to this industrial park where you'll have six, eight, ten major fintech centers. Hmm. And when you go through the town, I mean, you see this incredible mix of folks from everywhere. I mean, there are people from East Asia, from South Asia, from Africa, from Europe and the States. I mean, it, it, it has become, because it's a lovely place to live and because uh, you can live pretty well with your family there for you know, relatively little, it's become sort of this destination for uh, some really good uh, developers and programmers from, mm -hmm. it's, it seems like all over the world. I mean, my team right now, we have uh, two people from South Africa, we have eight or 10 from uh, uh, South Asia, East Asia, and then of course, tons and tons of folks from, from the area too. I mean, uh, one of my developers, I'm, he's given me a ride back to the hotel uh, last year on a trip. And as we're, we're going through this part of town, you know, just like uh, about half halfway between the uh, office and, and my hotel, he says, you see that place right there? He says, that's where I was born and raised. Wow. He says, that's where I grew up, right there. So, I mean, you know, you get a lot of local people as well, too. But anyway, very long story. Uh, I'm trying to get to a point. Uh, well, that's my, what we do here. If, uh, you need, if you need to go off on a rant, <laughs> seriously, just go off on one. You know, I was kind of hoping that, that you would let this slide because I'm, no, I'm making this a very long story. But on one of my trips out mm -hmm. there uh, last year, uh, we had a weekend because I went out for a two-week uh, time. And uh, so we rented a car. Uh, that's another story because they didn't have mm -hmm. any, they didn't, they generally only reserve automatics for, for Americans uh -huh. who come over and they didn't have any automatics. Nope. And so I said, fine. I said, give me a, a manual. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the amount of anxiety by the guy who rented us the car was so high. I, I really worried for his health. I mean, he, <laughs> he just did not believe, first of all, that I knew how to drive a manual and uh -huh. he, he couldn't imagine that I could drive a manual on the yes, left on the side, other side and then drive on the left side of the road. Oh, and I'd never done it before. Yeah. But I drive a manual myself, so mm -hmm. it, I, I was able, you know, I felt like my left hand was like, finally, I have the power, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of fun. But what we did was we went on a couple of long rides. We went out to uh, uh, 
Giant's Causeway uh, in the north of Ireland, Northern Ireland. Uh, so that's actually the UK, mm-hmm. but it's all connected, right? So we drove up to uh, Northern Ireland and we went to see the Giant's Causeway, which was spectacular, right? Mm-hmm. It's, these, it's, it's these natural stone pillars formed by lava under the ocean millions and millions and millions of years ago. And I mean, you see it and you just can't believe that anything like this could exist naturally. Wow. But uh, just a few miles from there, they have the original Bushmills Distillery. It has been in the same building since Shakespeare was writing plays. Bushmill is that Anheuser Busch? Is that the same thing, or no, that this Bush, is something else? Bushmills is is uh, a, 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 maybe the oldest distillery in all of Ireland. Wow. Yeah. So and, I'm confusing that with Budweiser. Yeah. Yeah. All it's right. not Anheuser Busch. This okay. Is, this is well before. Yeah. This is Bushmills, and uh, so. Uh, we did a tour of the distillery and this was not long after you kind of started me on my new interest in, in sort of the, you know, uh, the grains Mm -hmm. and, uh, they didn't take you through some tourist section. They took you through the actual distillery. So you, you got to see, you know, the alcohol and all its sort of various stages from the original, like, you know, mush sitting there Mm -hmm. to, you know, when they, when they, when they dry it out, I discovered that the difference you know, is that they, they air dry as opposed to fire, which makes the whiskey much smoother, right? With the, okay. with the barley. And, and, but then, uh, you know, it, it became like this little mini course that ended with a lot of drinking at the end of it. So <laughs> it was, it was a lot of fun, but that, yeah. So, uh, I got that sort of deep dive into, into, uh, whiskey making with, with that trip. And, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's, it's fascinating. You know, anything done really, really well is fascinating when you break it down. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I I don't have to necessarily have something be like a subject that is something of interest to me. I mean, seriously, you could like take anything. You could take box making. And if it's done with a really high degree of creativity and skill, it, it's fascinating. I, I'm just always amazed at, you know, what people do. But when you look at the the art that has that has gotten into, you know, the distilling of of you know, these, these various liquors and, and how distinct they are and, and, you know, the, the kind of really identifiable character and, and the subtle differentiation you can get between a, a, a scotch and a, an Irish whiskey. And of course, like, you know, the Americans like the bourbons and the rye sort of the frontier whiskeys. It's, it's really, it's really incredible to me. It's interesting. You talk about like the, basically the process of this fine art of making any type of product, because this is why I love having you on the podcast, because you always seem to come to different subjects with a very analytical mind, whether it be boxing, as uh, uh, if people don't know that uh, Ben does do box boxing coaching as well, too. And uh, you had mentioned us being at fight nights together. Yeah. And I would love my favorite part would be sitting there. And and as I would break down some of the jujitsu, you would easily start breaking down any of the stand up, especially the striking and, and the angles that they would take. And it's it's just very nice to hear your take on it, whether it, I, I'm just sitting here and I'm loving hearing you break down from what your experience was of, of going in and studying all the fine points of whiskey making. Yeah. And that's real cool. Also, the, the other part that I, I think we touched on before we even started this podcast, you'd said that uh, the, the trip going into Ireland, you were with coworkers and you're starting that whole agile process as yeah. well, too, which is which is a process if, if uh, in case people don't know, is, is agnostic pretty much across all programming. And it's not really necessarily the language. It's not necessarily uh, necessarily the tools. It's more like the whole process of how of trying to come up with like a solution or a, 
a product and everyone has 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 taken it whether it be managers whether it be yeah. as you said developers whether uh, uh technical managers etc right. etc and it's um it's an interesting i'm obviously going off on a sidetrack here i think it's an interesting process in and of itself because it's um the name agile is supposed to kind of connotate a bit of like adaptation to the unknown right like you try to you know you take your best guess here you make a plan but then when you know things go to shit or it starts getting sidetracked you have to adjust accordingly and this whole process kind of really lends itself to that to uh, a, a constant state of don't try to plan everything out like a hundred percent because something's going to go wrong along the way exactly so it, 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 uh, it's really interesting to me that you bring this up on a on a podcast that has sort of as the um, the the background the framework um, you, you know parenting right so I mean if there is if there's anything that is uh, more subject to change and uh, being adaptable you know it par- parenting is is something that when you, when you try to get dogmatic and you try to you know plan everything out you're, you're just going to spend your life uh mm-hmm. you know, well I'm, I'm not pulling my hair out because i shave it but you know you, <laughs> I, it, but easily 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 could get there right so uh yeah i mean i think the the beauty of agile and, and agile is not uh, a process it's actually an umbrella term for you know a, a series of mm-hmm. pretty well-defined um uh, yes. processes like scrum and like kanban mm-hmm. and others uh, but it, it describes an overarching mindset, and you, you, you described it very well. It's, you know, we can know a certain amount, uh, and uh, there's, there's always going to be a certain amount we cannot know, but mm-hmm. we can make uh, some educated guesses about. But we also have to remind ourselves that when we get to certain points, we may have been wrong about those guesses, and we may have to pivot, right? Mm. Which sounds like pretty good advice for parents, right? So. Overall, life. <laughs> overall, it, it, I, that that type of process lends to so as you were talking, so many other processes. Yeah. But yes, please go on with anything parenting life. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so um, there's there's something else that we call the agile mindset, right? Mm. Which is the um, idea that you don't have to have everything at once. To have something that's valuable, mm-hmm. so uh, folk, uh, some of the folks in our company had a meeting recently with one of our very senior people, and uh, one of the things I've discovered is when you meet with some of these senior people, is just how they got there, right? You, you, you if you see them in in big meetings and things, they all tend to sort of you know get up get up in front of the audience and they practice whatever hand movements their speaking coach has given them. And, you know, they're, they're reading from their monitor and some are better and some are, you know, a little stiffer, but when you get them uh, sort of, you know, off to the side and, and, and talking off script, you really get some insight, I think, into some of the um, really amazing lessons that, that they've brought to their careers and, you know, help, help to make them really uh, effective leaders. But one of, one of our, uh, one of our leaders, um, he was having a conversation with with our uh, some of our senior executives in our customer office, right? So it's all about getting out products that are built around customers, and it all involves agile methodology and digital transformation and all of those things, right? But he said, you know, he says what I've always found in my career. He says, if you if you give me a list of the twelve things you need to get something done, he says, you know, they're all going to be smart things on that list. But if I turn around to you and say, okay, you can only have eight of those. Hmm. 
can you still give me something that's going to be valuable? Mm-hmm. And invariably, the answer is yes, right? You know, you think everything's equal weight, but when you when you really look at things, and this, this is this is again, I'm going to just make the connection right now, rather than waiting till the end. This is parenting. I mean, you know, uh, as as you know, I've I've been through. I have a 25 year old uh, uh, from a previous marriage, a, a beautiful daughter who's now engaged and living outside DC with. Uh, a young man who we absolutely love and we've welcomed him into the family. So she's doing very well, but I, you know, and then my wife Felice and I have uh, a 13 year old and a 10 year old. So I've been a parent for a long Wonderful time. Wonderful children, might I add. Oh, uh, well, well, thank you. I mean, they're, 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 they're good folks. I mean, they're, I, I feel very, very lucky, but uh, you know, I've been through, I've been parenting through multiple phases of my life and I, I've been through um, periods where we were really living check to check, you know, and then, some some periods where you know we're we have a little more of a, a cushion, right? But you know when you think about it, you're you're always making those sorts of uh, decisions. Like like uh, you know our one of our bosses was suggesting. You know you're saying I feel like we have to have all this stuff to you know be providing a, a good home for our our daughter or our kids or whatever. But then if you start to look at it and you say, well, you know what, you really can't have them all. Mm. You just look at them and tell me what's the most important one. Like, so what's the one you can't live without? And you get that one. Okay, what's the next, right? And you go through that exercise and you find out, okay, I got six of the 12, but that's not bad. You know, if I got to wait, to wait till next year, whether it's next Christmas or it's next bonus or, you know, until we, you know, maybe, uh, you know, we can get a different job or a different situation. You know, you, you, you keep the thing moving forward and you keep providing your your children with what they need and and uh it's just a as you said right at the start with the whole your your wonderful description of agile it's a way of looking at life and and uh i i i think working this way now in in my job it's amazing how many metaphors i find for the experiences i've had in my life absolutely and when you were talking about that, you kind of like make your best guess, as you said. I think that's always a, a, a wonderful, I love that term, because uh, before Warren was born, Justin and I were trying to make our best guess of what, what kind of like, you know, life would be like um, <laughs> before and after. So you try to make the best guess possible. And as we were getting into that, um, there was one part where uh, I think it was about a month before Warren was born. And Justin and I were both in the kitchen and in the kitchen, we have doggy gates up to keep um, our our dog Hobbs out. And he doesn't like that. He doesn't like when we spend too much time in the kitchen, uh, you know, cooking or anything because he's like, Hey, come out and play. So he'll start barking and start barking and start barking. Right. And he's, it gets to the point where, where Jess has her back turned to Hobbs and, and you can physically see like her shoulders, like come up and like wince at like the piercing of the barking. Like, <laughs> and kind of like it, it was, it was like really getting to her. And I, and I joked with her, I, I go, you do realize that there's going to be a point where, where Warren's going to be crying. Hobbs is going to be barking and, 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 you know, the, the fire alarms going off and there's going to be fog horns and, and just like all hell breaking loose. And she goes, oh, no, no, it, I know, I know it's not going to happen for a while though. It's not going to happen for a while. <laughs> all right. Fast forward to the first night we take Warren home. Yeah. We take Warren home. Hobbs hasn't met Warren yet. Right. And so he's freaking out like, oh my God. Like, and, and of course dogs love this. They, they love when the pack gets bigger. So he's freaking, he wants to right. miss the meeting, wants to meet. And, 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 and Jess and I are riding on no sleep, obviously. And, and Warren finally wakes up and he starts crying because he's got to be changed. 
And so we take him up to the, the changing station, which, which Jess had planned out perfectly. Like we have this, we have the diaper genie, we have this, I have the, 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 the cloth, the, you know, the baby wipes all set up. It should all be, and then, uh, opens up, opens up the diaper. Hobbs is barking. Baby's crying. <laughs> there's, there's, there's crap flying out of Warren. <laughs> And, and and Jess just looks at me. I go right to hard mode, right you, right to hard mode. Not even not even a ramp up. Just right to hard mode. Yeah, it's 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 off the deep end. Yeah, yeah. You're 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 not you're not walking in gradually. Nope. Water's getting up to your waist, your chest. Yeah, it, that that's that's very true. By the way, uh, I, I suddenly got such a flashback to when they're very young. That that thing of the shit flying out of them is oh. no joke. I mean, for anyone out there, it's who, not even exaggeration. I keep thinking people are speaking. What is the what is the term? Hyperbole? Is it? Yeah, exact, yeah, yeah, hyperbole. I keep yeah. thinking they're just doing that to scare me, or or uh, you know, just make their job seem harder than it was, or more dramatic than it was. No, they were actually giving me a like you know mechanics like step by step account of what actually happens, like yeah, without exaggeration. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's and, and and so you had a boy yeah. first too. I started out with two girls. When mm. you when you when you factor in the boy and sort of the fire hose component too. I mean. It, <laughs> It's, it's like, seriously, you talk about like, you know, uh, stand up, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, you, you're sitting there, you're, you're, you're slipping, you're ducking, you know, you, you, you got your hand up by your chin, you're blocking your face. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it, it, it feels like, it, it feels like a good hard, I, Ben, I, I, good I played, hard round. I played dirty. I didn't even dodge. I, I did something, you know, you, hold, you know, to hold their hands or something. No, I, I held his, you know, his penis just, nope, pointing it away, like pointing it down. Sometimes I'll miss it, but. Yeah, but see, you're a grappler, right? So you're yeah. going to handle it differently. <laughs> <laughs> I have to do that now because anytime he's on the changing station, he likes to flip over to his belly and try to crawl off and do suicide dives off of the, yeah, off the thing. Yeah, so, yeah. so, you know, I'm, 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 I'm holding the hips. I'm making sure that he can't turn into me. Um, and, and, <laughs> just and, and, and wait, you know, I mean, oh, for, I have classmen wait, fortunately. For, <laughs> you, you won't be changing his diapers then, but you know this kid's going to be like, you know crazy jujitsu skills in a few years you know it's so. that and striking right because well, yeah. he's got he's got uh, uh jess's taekwondo as Jess, well too yeah you guys well see that that's the thing he's got both sides of the coin you know you got two really really high level and and she's no slouch at jujitsu either mm-hmm. i mean you know you, you you guys same rank as me she's a brown belt now. yeah too. i know and 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 that's why i'm i'm actually kind of surprised at her pretending like she gets you know flustered with things going i mean i've seen her on the mat you know in in tough situations and she's just as calm as can be you know she's she's but she's got that sort of martial artist i mean like really high level martial artist mentality of you know she just she can she can stay within herself she can focus on her technique and she knows she's going to find a way out i mean she's she's always had that it is very true but i i think there's a difference ben between when we go to class right and you learn how to shrimp okay you hip escape in order to create space in order to retain guard all right these grips you have them here to kind of off balance you can get a spider lasso in no one there's no black belt that sits you down and says, all right, when the shit comes flying, this is A, B, C that you got to do. Well, you see, you see, you do have those black belts, but they didn't give you any lessons. No, you know, they, they were your parents. And, uh-huh. what they, and what they were thinking is, you did that to me. I'm yes. going to make okay. sure it happens to you. I'm not going to give you any lessons because that's my victory is when you're getting hosed, you know, oh, 30 years from now. Yes. So. <laughs> those black belts are laughing so there's no it's it's all uh what is it learning by doing yeah there it is basically what we had to do um and i think the other great advice i got too was that prior to you know the, the him 
uh, Warren being born was that uh, what well, Warren, your your mom and I obviously we uh, as the the internet age type of people, mm-hmm. you know, going reading as many articles on, on the mom side, on the dad side, general parenting, right? Uh, the book, what to expect when you're expecting, yeah. always a, always a classic, uh, whatever material. And I remember um, one of my other friends, John. He has two daughters. And I remember like asking him on uh, during a barbecue one day because uh, he had handled two of them very well. And I asked him, so you know. What kind of advice would you give me? Just what's your what, your best advice? And he he he's doing this, and he, he did it without even like flinching. He's just grilling at the same time. He goes, "Oh well, you know, you read as much as you want, you watch as many YouTube videos as you want, you research it, and then the day comes, and you just kind of throw it all away and wing it." Uh, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Amazing advice, and and I was that seems very, and it just echoes like every every other day, like that kind of advice just like yeah. echoes, you know. You, you, you know, but in a way, you're, you're probably doing your kids a favor with that, too, right? Like, I, I mean, I, I I don't know if there's real truth. I mean, I don't interact with parents who hover over their kids in playground. But I mean, I know this whole concept of the helicopter parent. But I do know a lot of parents who, who get bent out of shape about every little development. And uh, I, I'm, look, I, I don't know. You know, everybody doesn't, you know, oh, that's horrible or that's great, you know, I, 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 I do think that there is um, a certain amount of oversight that you have to provide as a parent. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to you have to make sure that they get to bed on time, they eat right. You know, that they do not play with knives when they're little. Right? I mean, you, you oh know, you, shit, you, really? You, yeah. Okay. Fuck. I, okay. We'll we'll catch up on yes. this later. I, we'll have we'll have a quick conversation before I leave. I have a, a checklist I brought. <laughs> but but the but you know but the thing is at the same time you got to have you know you got to have uh, your kids feel like. You know, they're, they're, you know, they're kind of carving out their own path. They're learning things too. And, and, you know, having that sort of attitude, you know, where it's just like, you know, you read all this stuff and you know it. I mean, look, the the point is, you know, you don't make any big mistakes, right? But at the same time, you can kind of go along and you, you can, you can run into some things and say, okay, let's, let's, you know, you turn here and go back. That, that, that's fine. I, I, I don't think, and it kind of ties into our whole conversation before about, you know, you make your best guesses, you go as far as you can, but you, you're, you're always going to make some missteps. You're always going to, you know, learn some things along the way. And, you know, maybe I'll have a conversation with you a few years from now mm. and we'll have very different approaches to how things uh, were handled in terms of our kids. Well, but I will tell you this, they're, you know, Warren's going to be a fantastic kid. My kids are terrific people. And, you know, and, yep. and, and a few decisions here and there isn't going to change that you know and and i mean that that's i think that takes a lot of the pressure off being a parent well at the same time leaving you know a lot of real pressure when it comes to you know providing all the things you have to right but don't don't make it worse you know your son jack uh made a comment about hobbs like one summer two summers ago that left just speechless and also me rolling on the floor laughing because <laughs> it was such an amazing observation we were uh, they were over for a barbecue yeah and then uh just took jack and uh, madeline out in the park to uh for a walk yeah and then jack just goes uh you know what's funny about dogs and then and then just goes no well what's funny about dogs jack and he goes they're always naked <laughs> <laughs> and all that old jessica too was like, yes jack yes they, they are always naked <laughs> and it's 
and and it's that approach and he came back and he was talking world war ii uh or world war one fighter planes with me and it was i'm like i i know that age as well too and i, I gotta hand it to you ben that, that's that's it's really cool well i seeing will them like I, especially jack 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 is uh there's a term autodidact, right? So somebody who's self-taught, mm. you know, somebody who, who, who learns on their own. And, uh, you know, I, I have, uh, educators on with both my parents, both, you know, and, and Felice has educators on her side. You know, we both mm. come from some, from families where learning is really valued and we have, you know, uh, very well educated, uh, very smart, uh, people, you know, her, her parents are brilliant. You know, uh, my, my parents were both, you know, really smart people, uh, who I learned a ton from, but there's different kinds of intelligence. Right. And, uh, you know, there's the, you know, sort of like, uh, people who go into a class and they learn everything and they're motivated and they'll go and they'll do extra research and everything. But then there's the people where, I mean, you leave them alone and they will come back with like, the equivalent of master's degrees in, in certain topics. And my son, I, I've really, I've, I've known a few people like this, but I've never had a chance to be firsthand witness to someone like that right from the start. He, from the earliest ages will, you know, just retire into his room. He has all he ever asks for are books, mm. you know, I try, you want this, 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 you know, he went through a period, we got him some Legos. He likes Legos, but I mean, it's really just books. And then he sits there and he'll read them over and over and over again. And uh, I would have been completely shocked if I hadn't met uh, Felice's dad. Mm. I mean, that th this is, you know, temperamentally, he is so much like her father. And her father was, you know, this just very um, uh, organized, disciplined uh, uh, sort of person who, you know, really felt like sitting around and you know, doing nothing or just watching TV was sort of a waste of time. And it was always mm. like, well, let me, let me look into this. Let me look into this. And he always wanted to learn more. And, uh, uh, Jack is, uh, John, we call him Jack. He's, he's absolutely that, that type of personality. Now my, uh, 13 year old daughter takes after my father. I mean, she's, she's very bright, but she's, she's, you know, she wants to go out and, you know, be hanging out with her friends and she's very social and you know it, it's funny they're, they're they're very similar in a lot of ways they meet in the middle on a lot of things but they absolutely <coughs> favor one or the other side of the family so mm -hmm. that's good that you see the the, the personality uh, difference as well too the do you think as far as you said that you could leave them alone and then kind of like that quote genius or in a way, whatever that intellect, you just let it flourish. And then it, you, you just let that kind of like uh, creative seed get, get planted. And then everything just kind of like grows from there. Do you think it, do you see anything in, in the current education or the way it goes or in, in the past where they've attempted to either uh, discourage that or are they moving towards that or have they, realize that type of intelligence as well too and cater to it what are you what are you seeing you're talking days? about like in their schools and yeah. things uh, you know the, our, our schools are i think i think they, they do a good job it's it's really a challenge you know as much as and and listen we 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 spent um years advocating for um uh, a better more defined uh gifted and talented program mm. Uh, and you know, we, we've, uh, 
along with a lot of other parents in town feel like, you know, there are some kids where you want to, you know, you don't want them to just kind of go up to the edge of what they're teaching everyone else. You want to challenge them and push them. I mean, you know, I I always compare it to sports, right? So uh, there's no one in their right mind who would argue that the way to develop like a really top-notch football program or basketball program or, or tennis or volleyball program would be to uh, go up to the point of challenging the kids where most of them did okay and then stop there mm-hmm. and, and really just sort of ask the kids who were capable of doing a lot more to just sort of hold back, right? It, it's insane, right? We, we, we automatically separate out the, the more gifted athletes, the more skillful athletes, and we give them additional challenge. Mm-hmm. Right. And and then they become better and better. And we probably go through several levels of sort of, you know, uh, uh, separating out the more successful and and putting them up against even higher levels of competition until, you know, we've we've kind of had that sort of crucible effect. Right. We've separated the gold right from the from the base metals. And uh, it, it's no different with with, um, I think, academics uh, that I think the uh, truth of it is is that our public school systems, we don't have the same mechanism for, for doing that that we do in some of our athletic programs. Because, I mean, athletic programs aren't mandated for everybody. Uh, academics are, right? So it's a long-winded way of saying that I think our schools actually do an excellent job of giving a good foundational education to all the students. Uh, they provide some additional programs and, you know, uh, my son and my, my daughter have both benefited from some of the really cool things that they've done that they make available for kids who want to sort of go further. But, uh, I would say that the way Felice and I view it is that there's a certain point where, uh, you can't ask the schools to do all that. I mean, I really, in a perfect world, and I know in some countries, you know, you look at Finland and you look at, you know, South Korea and you say, well, they're doing it there. They're challenging them there. They are, but that they, they have the infrastructure. They have the educational infrastructure. I don't think it's fair to turn to, you know, the schools as they're currently configured and say, just do more, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to give, you, you, you have to commit to that as a society. And it's, it's not fair to blame it all on them. But what you really can do is... Um, you can find that at home, right? I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it can be music, it can be the arts, it can be, you know, just creating uh, an environment where, uh, you know, reading isn't optional. You know, you, you, you require a certain amount of reading that goes you know, beyond what they, they ask for in school. And I mean, uh, you know, we'll, we will pick books that, that meant a lot to us at, at, you know, at about the same age as my kids, and we'll, we will ask them to, to read those books, and then we'll talk about them. They write, they paint, right? They, 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 we have a lot of things that we, we have them do. Um, is, is that better or worse than getting it in school? I don't know. But I, I do know that um, it, when I kind of look at the lessons of my life, I would say probably more of them were learned at my parents' dinner table than were learned in school. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, and I got a lot out of school, but I got a lot from, from interacting with, you know, two very bright, engaged people who were also very interested in my development. And, it, you know, I, as, as mentioned to you before we sat down here today, the very fact, the very fact that you're doing what you're doing, you guys, and I mean, we knew this going in about the two of you, but we, you're already those kinds of parents, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're looking to, 
uh, inform and challenge and engage your son. And just your desire to do that is going to have probably as much of an impact on the person he ultimately becomes. And it will be just as informative of those life lessons that he keeps going back to as anything he's going to learn in school. <clears throat> I appreciate that, Ben. On the flip side of that, what do you think, in, in your opinion, because you, we started to talk a little bit about like you know uh, parents that push too hard or helicopter parents. Yeah. What do you think is uh, the point where it's too much, in your opinion? Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to go and offer an, an opinion on something where I really don't have um, you know a clear answer. I mm -hmm. think uh, you know I could I could just kind of cop out and say well at the point where it starts it's to perfectly damage the kid you know yeah. i mean you know this that uh i don't know if you saw it on, on netflix is that uh, uh documentary trophy kids if you ever watch that i think that's a, it's, it's a good one if, if you want oh, to I'll look, have to look into for that, that. now but yeah it's it's based like one, one of the scenes it's uh for child athletes yeah and it showed uh, a, a girl i forgot her name but i think she's like eight or nine she's like number one for like that division but her dad was Oh, you know, cursing at her, throwing her clubs across, like, what the F are you doing, et cetera, et cetera. And it's kind of like, maybe it's just a different world there. Maybe that's just how they, they have to be, quote, treated. But at the same time, and when, when you see, like, you know, when, obviously, from your standpoint, from where we are as parents, you see that and you just be like, oh, that guy's an asshole, you know? It's, yeah. it's, I guess it depends on that point where, once you enter that type of world as you know if you there's a difference between like okay your your kids an all-star versus all right they're actually the number one ranked uh tennis player under the age of nine in the world yeah so yeah. i don't know i that's why i was asking you that question man because i don't really know the answer as far as quote pushing too hard like what does that even mean so I, 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 I understand where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I, I have never had a child who was the number one ranked tennis player under nine in the world. So, yeah. I mean, I'm sure if, if I were to, you know, look at the father and mother and, you know, uh, pass judgment on them, they would say, well, you're not in our shoes. You don't know how much work it takes to get there. You don't know how much sacrifice. And if I didn't do this, they wouldn't get it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, this really does matter to them. And you know what? They may be right. Maybe, maybe that child in, in, you know, a more introspective moment would say, this is really important to me. And, and this is, this is enriching my life, my life. Maybe, maybe it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know what? It may not be, uh, all one thing or all the other. I mean, there, there have been plenty of stories that we've all heard about, you know, kind of highly publicized cases of child acting stars and things where they said that their lives were miserable. And, you mm -hmm. know, I spent many, many years in the theater and, uh, I saw, uh, a lot of, um, parents pushing their kids. And, uh, when, uh, when I became a parent, you know, I had people reach out and say, well, you should have, you know, you, you, you sort of have this structure already in place. You should have your kids go do this or do this. You know, uh, we, we had people discuss with us, you know, commercials and this and that. And, never any interest in, in even taking the first step down that road. But I don't know that there aren't some kids who don't find some benefit in it. We hear about the, you know, the worst, the worst examples, but, uh, there may be some good ones too. I mean, I think as a parent, probably the most important question you can ask yourself, and this would probably be the true answer, not what anybody else could say, but you know, what, what they would say is if you ask them, 
in your heart of hearts, are you doing this for you or are you doing this for them? Right? And if you cross over that line mm-hmm. where this is living vicariously through mm-hmm. your child, mm-hmm. as opposed to, I think my child, because I'll tell you, my wife pushes our kids on the piano. Mm-hmm. There are plenty of days where they say, I do not want to play the piano. Been I, there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I remember your, your, I think it was your first podcast yeah. where you, were, you, you, you know, you fell in love with Metallica and you yep. wanted to play guitar, but, that. but you know, you, you, away. but you had a lot of piano <laughs> lessons before. I think you had what, yep. 12 or 13 12 years or 13 yeah, classical. Yeah, yep. before, before you ever got to that point, you know, and I think Felice and I can both uh, look at things like that and say, you know what? You're going to do this because at the end of it, even if you never play piano again after you turn 18 or 16 or whenever we let them out, uh, you will have learned how to learn. Uh-huh. If you pick up another discipline that means something to you that you really want to pursue, you will have what they call that transference of skills where, you know, if you've gotten really accomplished at one thing, it actually becomes easier for you to become accomplished at something else because you've been down the road. You know what it takes. You know what those those processes are and you can apply them in in really a wide range of scenarios. So I, I, I feel very confident that I could answer the question we're doing this for them but i cannot imagine that there aren't a lot of parents who avoid that question because i think they might not they might not really want like the answer right Mm -hmm. but it it it, it's a it's a tricky situation you can still love your kids and not be doing right by them uh you know i think that there are parents who would be uh really hurt if you suggested to them this might not be in their children's best interest and they were doing it for themselves but uh, that that's kind of one of those moments you have to, you know, introspection is a powerful tool. It helps guide us. It helps, you know, shape us and improve us. Right. I mean, and you got to suddenly call bullshit on yourself in a situation like that. You know, you have to sit back and say, all right, you know, I'm smelling it. This mm-hmm. is me. Right. <laughs> so I, that, that, that for me would be the answer to that question. Here's digging into it a little further because we, we talk about, uh, uh, as we were talking right there, a little bit about living vicariously through the kids. If you go a few shades um, to to the side of that, as opposed to living through them, um, there's a certain level, well, not a certain level. You, As parents, you obviously have uh, a degree of control over mm-hmm. your kids as well, too. And you want them to, I would, Jess and I, for you, Warren, we want you to make as many free choices as you would want to. Oh, I want to try this sport. I want to try this activity. But then I'll uh, preface this with um, when I was growing up and I wanted to try, uh, I wanted to try pretty much all organized sports. The one my parents wouldn't let me play was football, though. Not Wise until, people. But, and this, is, <laughs> this, is what I'm, this is what I'm getting to. This is what I'm getting to. They, at that point in time, they had the knowledge of, oh, football, if you get hit a certain way, oh, you could, you could paralyze yourself. Or, yeah. you know, they were thinking about the heavy hits. And so they eventually let me do football. I did it for like just uh, like eighth grade through like 10th grade. Um, just because at that time I was, they didn't, they had a weight class, like they had a weight maximum. Right. So um, I only did it for for a short time. It was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with it, yeah. but then I and then I discovered guitar, so then I pivoted off of that. Right. But in any case, now obviously you have all the new 
research that has come out on CTE, yeah. uh, the chronic traumatic endo- endophilopathy. I think that's what, I think that's what it is. Encephalopathy. Encephalopathy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what was that research? Um, I think they, they the interviewed... The Cleveland Institute has been dissecting mm-hmm. the, the brains of, of football players and boxers. They, you, you can only check for it when someone's deceased. But they've they've it, it it's a uh, a pattern of uh, chronic damage and and the results of that chronic damage that they can they can measure after uh, you know in a, on a cadaver mm-hmm. and and they've been finding that it's just uh, an extraordinarily high percentage of professional football players. I think they did like 114 or 115 of them, and out of that number, like let's say they did 115, 114 of them were diagnosed. Like that's yeah. a high number. Yeah, and and, and I mean. I, I, w- I will say that I read one disclaimer on that statistic, and it's fair, which is that of the, and I think it was about 115, I think you're pretty close, if not exactly on with that number, but um, they did say that these were cases that had been submitted to them mm. to be examined. So clearly there was already an indication in those people's lives that there was a very good chance that something was wrong. Mm-hmm. And we don't know if we just went and and uh, did the same uh, 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 examination of all players across the board if we would uh, find the same percentage. But uh, as the, and the authors actually stipulated to that in their findings, but at the same time they said that this does seem to indicate that it's an extraordinarily high percentage. And the other thing they're finding, because they're, they're, they're examining cadavers of all ages, is they're finding that uh, from high school on, they are starting to see the effects of this. And, and I mean, it's not just football. I mean, football yep. probably has, has the, uh, the greatest you know, pounds per square inch impact that you're dealing with. But, uh, you know, I... I I love boxing dearly, but um, I'm I'm working very hard to train people in boxing without their taking a punch in the head, right? Yeah. I mean, if they want to spar, they can spar, and then we try to make sparring. Like, I am not a fan of gym wars, you know? Mm-hmm. I what, try are gym, to, what are gym wars? Where you just put two people in and have them, like, beat the living crap out of each other, right? I, I Like, I think... I, I truly believe that you can train for an actual fight never going more than about 70%. Striking. Striking. Yeah. In fact, I think, uh, and, and if, if the recent spate of injuries that have canceled main events is any indication, I think I, you know, I, I, I probably have some evidence for what I'm suggesting, you know, people, and, and almost all the time it's somebody says, well, they just got into this, like, you know, this thing in the gym. And the next thing, you know, they were like blasting each other and somebody's injured. Right. Uh, but, um, we, we try to, we try to instill, even for the people who choose to spar, we try to instill, uh, sort of a 50% limit on, on shots, uh, and make it more technical. You know, I tried to, um, carry over what I can from, uh, how jujitsu is trained. Uh, I will say that, that, um, jujitsu has one thing going for it that probably makes it, you know, the most effective martial art to study. And it's probably not what a lot of people would think I would, uh, uh, identify as 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 the dif- differentiator but it's the tap mm, mm-hmm. i mean the tap yes 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 the tap makes jujitsu great because the thing is i could make you a better fighter if you went out there and struck full on all the time but you'd, you'd have you know you'd be a candle that would burn out very quickly right mm-hmm. uh, you, you just can't keep doing that but in jujitsu you literally are able to train full out and the tap 
allows you to stop right at the precipice of where you would get injured or you would be, you know, in trouble killed. Yeah. You know, and uh, that's not to say you don't get injured. We've all been injured, you know, but, but, um, when you consider how much like full on training you're able to do safely, because you can just say reset, you know, I mean, it's, it's the video game of martial arts. You just, you, you know, you, you just reload the last save, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a great thing. And in boxing, we don't have it. So, you know, I, I, I'm very, very concerned, especially with the kids. Like I, I won't even let the kids spar if they, if their parents want them to, uh, but we, we do learn real technique. We learn all the stuff that, that they would be using if they were in fact, uh, sparring or, or if they ever had to defend themselves. Uh, but we do it in a controlled way. And then, as I say, for, for the, uh, for the adults, we, we, we go at about 50%. And it's very interesting that you brought up gym wars because I actually haven't heard that term before, but as soon as you explain it, I'm like, oh yeah, this is what gym wars is what happens when there's no, uh, uh boxing instructor in the class. <laughs> To like, to like oversee what is going on. I used to train at a mixed martial arts school way before I started jujitsu yeah. and there were literally be nights. And this is not on the, on the fault of, of, of the, the, the owner. It was the fault of whoever was like the instructor at, at the time. And then them just not knowing what to look for, where just new people would just be coming off from the streets, just putting on some headgear, putting on some eight ounce gloves and just going at it. Yeah. So the other, uh, aspect that you 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 put up was that 50 percent or 75 percent just not full out and i think it's always interesting and this is why i it's it's so important to have a coach like yourself there to supervise because i think you've seen it before especially with new people who are training striking all right you tell them all right we're going to start doing a little bit of live sparring yeah start at 30 percent, 40 percent, okay and then they go they go it's going great for the first 30 seconds and right. then someone just gets tagged Boop, oops all right Boom, raise it up to 35% now. Right. Boop, oh, someone gets tagged the, the other way. And then it just starts escalating. And if you don't catch it, soon they're just slugging because they just let it get out of control. Exactly. But, but you know, when they're, when they're slugging like that, they're not getting better at boxing. Yep. Uh, listen, you're, you, you know, we mentioned it earlier. You, uh, your wife, you're both very high-level martial artists. Anybody who trains in the martial arts understands this as to, an absolute truth. But... Um, for somebody coming in, uh, whatever their reasons are, it may be fear, you know, maybe they, you know, they feel like they're getting bullied or they could be bullied, or maybe it's because they just, you know, they're full of piss and vinegar and they want to go in there and challenge themselves or, you know, combination of things. But, you know, for people coming in, uh, they'll usually have something driving them. And if they're put in a situation where they now feel like for whatever reason, it's like, okay, it's go time. And we, you know, I, I have to defend myself or I have to establish myself. I have to, you know, get, I have to dominate you or whatever it is, or, or not die, you know, whatever the motivator is, they sort of go into sort of that lizard part of their brain and they are, they are pushing an agenda that has nothing to do with refinement of technique and improvement under you know, stressful circumstances. And that's really, as martial arts instructors, that's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to give you a foundation of technique and then allow you to practice those under an increasingly challenging set of circumstances so that you become more and more confident in that technique. I mean, uh, you know, it. I could teach you an arm drag, you know, and then put you out there and have somebody going at you full on, right? And say, 
do the arm drag and you'd be like, ah, you know, <laughs> you'd be running for the door, you know, it's like, exactly what, what arm, I would make too. Yeah. What, I'd be a little more high pitched than you've yeah, been. What, but yes. what, what arm drag, what, you know, get, get them off me, get them off me. Right. But you know, uh, if, if, if you learn it and then you drill it and then you apply it in a lot of circumstances and suddenly you start to see it and you know where I'm going with this because you are the master of the arm drag, oh. right? Like, you know, the Hollywood movies where they have those, those cables, those cables hooked up to the back of the person and they fire with a shotgun and they go flying backwards <laughs> That's what they look like when you arm drag them. But but the point is, you could never get to that if they were throwing you into full-on conflict all the time because you would never have the time to sort of evaluate and discern and then apply it and then go, oh, I got that. Now I see how that works. And then later on, you're in the middle of a role where you're you're not thinking about anything and suddenly you've arm dragged someone and you go, what just happened there? I mean, that probably was so long ago for you that you may not remember it anymore. Mm. But I guarantee you had multiple moments like that where you went, damn, this works, right? Like, and then before you know it, people are flying across the room because, because Eki's mastered the arm drag. But, uh, this, this is, this is a, a tough thing to sell to people. It's don't go out there and worry about how you're doing. Go out there and practice what we taught you. And it requires you kind of get humble. And if, and if you're, if your sort of objective is to come in and have everyone go, damn, you got some hands, you could, you, whoa, you could, you could throw, you know, I mean, people come in there looking for validation, right? That kind of person is going to have to either change their approach or they're going to have to find another gym yep. because they will hurt people. They will, they will drive you crazy. And, and it, 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 it's, it's kind of antithetical to what we're trying to get across when we're asking people to be technical. We were going over, I forgot which podcast it was. It was either the, the most recent one or uh, we were talking about how, yeah, that is a selling point of martial arts, especially jujitsu, where it says, oh, it's supposed to, you know, there's humility. It's supposed to, to uh, suppress the ego or at least yeah. make, it, make it go away. And I'm sure you've found it over the years, man, that, that like, it's a, it's a good message. But sometimes it just doesn't work. Sometimes you just get people who come in there. And I, I think I, I might refine that and be like, if they're open to it, yeah, eventually they could possibly become more humble. I know, yeah. I know it chilled me the fuck out when I started like yeah. uh, uh, training. Um, but some other people, I, I say it, sometimes it enhances it. If, they, if normally if they're an asshole coming in, they'll be more of an asshole coming out. And, and you just can't really change that at, at, at some points. It's not, it's not the magic bullet as I'm sure you've probably seen with boxing as well. Too. Yeah. So you're a hundred percent right. Uh, it, it, it is in a lot of ways, kind of a, a personality amplifier. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I will say I have seen people who have come in though and, uh, were willing to, make concessions mm -hmm. based on the, the, the sort of the, uh, feel of the gym. What I mean by that uh. is if you come in I, and I've been in like a lot of different martial arts gyms over the years, I did Taekwondo for many years. Uh, I did, uh, we, we did what we, we called full contact karate way back before this was back in the seventies. This was before we had, you know, UFC or anything like that. They eventually came out with a, a promotion called the PKA, the, uh, professional karate association i think it was it was called and they had joe lewis not the the boxer the the very famous karate fighter and bill superfoot wallace and jeff smith out of dc they had a bunch of fighters like that and they they participated in this had a couple of events on i think it was on nbc or something but uh you know around that time and just before that we would 
you know, we would throw on our, our pads and go and, you know, beat the hell out of each other in, in karate. And, you know, so I, I've been in a lot of gyms, a lot of different disciplines, boxing gyms, karate, uh, jujitsu. Uh, but you, you definitely go into some gyms and it's like a hard gym, right? It's like everybody's just sort of there, uh, you know, kind of with a chip on their shoulder. And then you go into gyms which are super supportive. And that doesn't mean that they're not really like hardcore training gyms. Mm -hmm. You know, they can be really hardcore gyms. But you feel like the the message is right, the process is right, it's about the technique, it's about applying it under controlled circumstances, you know, challenging, but controlled circumstances. And I think if, if you... If you go in there with a chip on your shoulder, but there is a part of you, to your point, that it, well, you, I'm kind of making the converse of your point. You were saying sometimes it's not. But if it is there yes. and you, you haven't been really con- confident enough to, to let that sort of you know go, uh, if you go into a gym where you see people working that way and it's like, come on, brother, come over here. Let's roll. You know, I'll go with you. I'll go. How, just tell me how hard you want me to go. You know, and I mean, you, you, can, you can get people to sort of like, let down their guard and start mm-hmm. to train the right way. But, but absolutely. you're absolutely right though, man. If, if it's not there, I mean, yep. we, we, you, you know, I mean, back That's, at Mike's, mm-hmm. we, there were a couple of nights where Mike went and just like had a whip someone's ass. Cause oh, yeah. they, they were like knocking people around and once in a rare while, they'd come back the next night. Maybe we had, maybe we had a convert, but more often than not, we had somebody who just walked out of the gym cause they just wanted to bully people. Yep. Going back with uh, the conversation, I think it started with uh, an, an initial foray into CTE. Mm-hmm. Um, as we were saying, with with uh, you can only probably do so much when you you let your kids do. All right, yes, go ahead and explore that. Go ahead and explore that. And I, like I said, my parents had to put a cap on me for a while when it came to football, yeah, or anything like that. Do you think, especially with this the newfound knowledge and and everything coming out? What do you think the the direction will go as far as like for signups for let's say even peewee football knowing kind of like here's the thing that that kind of like really irked me when i i started hearing more about it and seeing these studies because you hear it about in okay in the nfl yeah professional nfl and then you realize all right nfl that's like the highest level yeah they've been doing this since they were probably the heisman trophy winners they've been doing it since college They've been, and in order to get into the best college, they had to do it since high school. And it had to be one of the best in high school. They had to be one of the, probably in a, in a prep yeah. school and then, yeah. and then peewee. And then you think, all right, accumulation of all those games that they played. And then you realize, oh my God, all the scrimmages that they had. Oh yeah. my God, all the practices that they've had. All since, I think peewee football, you can start from what? Nine years old? And sometimes they do practices in the summers. I remember I used to do two a days. Sometimes uh, down Midwest or, or or in the South, where it's like football is religion down there, three a days. Yeah. And it, and it's not even like in you you get hit. You probably get hit less in an actual football game than practice because in practice you have lineman drills where like all right line up boom go just keep going just keep going and they they had this one drill. I remember it knocked me out. I was. Uh, they set up a bunch of slots, like they put a bunch of cones, and in the, and each uh, in between each cone was a, was a lane, and uh, it was uh, linemen versus uh, the backs. Yeah, and so I was one of the backs because I was one of the smaller guys, and I run through, and I have to choose one of the, the slots and try to just get through, put my head down, and just you know go through. And this was in uh, uh, high school sophomore JV, where now there was no weight cap, 
So right. I remember I was like a buck 30 soaking wet. And there was this 200 plus adult right across the way. And I'm, and I'm just like, all right, I'm going to use my quote, use my speed and put my head down. I got clobbered. Yeah. But now imagine that multiplied a two, like I had to keep doing that drill over and over, over the years. So with all of that knowledge, it's kind of like you, you want to have your kids like, oh yeah, like all their other friends are doing it. And this is the sport. It's a team sport. And, and it is actually, there's, you know, it's a community thing and there's obviously benefits to it with teamwork, but with all this knowledge now of what goes on, what do you do as, a, in your opinion, I know what I'm going to do as a parent, but what do you think your opinion is going in with the knowledge of that for, for a sport like football, hockey, hockey has, has just as many hits as well too. Even if, even though it's not directly to the, to the head, it's still the, the hits are jarring enough to, yeah. to, to cause it. Obviously youth boxing, any type of youth kickboxing. Yeah. What do you, what's your opinion on that or your take? Oh, it's, it's, wow. It's a, it's a tough subject. Um, obviously, um, I, I love, uh, sports that put you in a position where you have to test yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, testing yourself always involves some risk. It yeah. always involves some, uh, some danger. Uh, and, you know, if I were, if I were to sit here and say, oh, you shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that. I could also say that, you know, I probably did most of those things growing up, you know? Yep. Um, but there is absolutely, uh, a safer way to approach everything. Mm -hmm. I, I am going to, I'm going to suggest that, um, you know, football probably, uh, as a sport, as it's currently configured, really just can't be justified anymore. Yep. I, I mean, I'm sorry, you know, you, 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 you look at someone like Aaron Hernandez mm -hmm. and, and how it affected his life. And you say, well, you know, it, it, maybe he was just an asshole. Right. But, yep. but the thing is he had severe CTE. They, they examined his, his, uh, brain, uh, after he, he killed himself, he had severe CTE and uh junior Seau and others you know you you hear about these lives that were tortured i mean really tortured what amount of community or you know feeling like you're you're part of things or you know getting pats on the back or you know getting exalted within your your high school town what what could possibly be worth you know a life where you're suffering and as a parent like what would be a a valid, you know, uh, cost for, for, you know, uh, justifying your, your kids suffering that way. I mean, I, I would never want, you know, there, there's nothing you could say to me that, you know, oh, they would get this and this and this out of it, where I would say it would be worth my child, you know, um, having suicidal thoughts. I mean, because oh. you're going to a dark place where you're, you know, you're being tortured, like what, what could possibly, what could possibly be, be worth that? Uh, that being said, soccer, you know, you get a lot of head injuries in there. You mentioned hockey and clearly boxing and, and, you know, MMA and, you know, various, various sports. Uh, I, I really do feel, and I'm, I'm reading a fantastic book right now, uh, the new biography of Muhammad Ali. And, uh, we all saw what happened and everybody wants to point to those fights, 
but they make they did it, it, it this is unprecedented amount unprecedented amount of research on his life and and they talked to all the people who were close to him through all the camps and he took horrific beatings in sparring sessions larry holmes who you know retired him essentially because you know ali went out there for that that last fight against holmes and you know he couldn't even answer the bell uh you know he it was it was one of the most painful you know boxing matches you you could ever watch but larry holmes was a sparring partner of his for years when when ali was a champion and holmes said not only did he get hit in in sparring sessions he said he would fire you if you didn't hit him he had this notion in his mind that you prepped your ability to take a heavy shot by taking heavy shots and unfortunately gyms and football uh, practices and hockey uh, practices and soccer clinics. There are a lot of people out there who have this sort of, like, you know, Cro-Magnon view of how to train people. Right? Uh, I, I, I really do believe. I mean, I mentioned it earlier, but I really do believe that you can have tremendous success even in a contact sport by not going full contact. Mm-hmm. And I think you ramp it up before an event so that you're not completely unprepared for it but it's always going to be your technique it's going to be your timing it's going to be your ability to read and counter that is going to allow you to succeed as a striker it's not going to be getting punched in the head right so i i, I absolutely believe that if if as a country as a society across all countries we embrace the notion that this kind of training, and, and who knows if, if it's the training or the games, but you bring up a really good point. You're in training all the time. You're in, in competition occasionally. You know, the, the accumulation of all of those blows, what is that doing? And it, as you read this biography of Ali, you really start to see a picture. I always thought, oh, it was that third Ali Frazier fight. You know, look at the, the beating he took. But they said they had training sessions where he got knocked down six times in, in, in a sparring session because he would stand there and he would literally let people hit him in the head. So I, I think we have to get smart. If we want to have these sports and we want to allow people to test themselves, and I think it's beautiful having sports and I think it's beautiful testing yourself. And we have a lot of people who come out and, you know, generations of kids and they, they're, they're filled with the same sort of, you know, drive and, and, and you know, kind of that desire to, you know, to do things that you know may not be safe and maybe a little crazy. I'm thinking again about your your conversation with. Uh, um, oh, it was which one was it? It was um, you. You were talking about the surfing. Remember, we were that was with Adam. Yep. Yeah, Adam but, but but yeah, it was. But it was um, Adam talking about. Oh, he was. Oh, the the skating, mm-hmm. the uh, the fighting in the backyard. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was it was everything it was just like yes. you saw a portrait of a of a young man at that time because he was talking about himself as a kid you saw a portrait of a young man looking to always sort of challenge himself mm-hmm. that's a good thing yes we don't want to get rid of that mm-hmm. but i i really do think it's it's incumbent upon us to say how can we do this in a way that's safer how can we say all right you know like go up to the edge don't go past it let's eliminate you know 75 80 percent of the shots you're taking in the head and mm-hmm. then let's do what we can in the actual competitions themselves if it's a little heavier gloves whatever it is to to uh uh make that a little safer as well i don't want to get rid of the sports Mm -hmm. i guess is what i'm saying no absolutely but but at the same time nothing is worth a child growing into an adult who 
whose life has been ruined by, by uh, successive head injuries. I've talked on a previous podcast of where I've read articles of for the argument to go to bare knuckle. Now, the justification for going to bare knuckle for both MMA and for boxing is the result of the, the, the type of uh, conservation a fighter would have to have in order to start throwing shots. Like mm-hmm. if, if I, I, I made the analogy of like if I told you to punch this table as hard as you could right now, you'd probably look at me a little weird and have to like adjust because you know that if you hit this table wrong and at the wrong angle, you're, you're breaking some knuckles, your wrist is going to get jacked. Yeah. And the fact that there's, there's, there's hand wraps, there's eight ounce gloves, um, and what's even worse, uh, uh, golden gloves boxing, they use headgear. Mm-hmm. So it just enlarges the target. Yeah. And, and everyone looks at it like, oh, it's humane because they have padding on. And More just concussions. Kind of, and, and, and you remember yeah. when we, uh, we came over that night to uh, watch the fight of, uh, what was it? Uh, I was asking you, um, how many shots do you think uh, get landed to the head per round? And mm-hmm. then uh, over the course of 10, all right, maybe like around 10. All right, let's say yeah. 100. And then you, over the course of 10 matches, what is that? It's yeah. a thousand shots, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And so you have, even though it's a padded glove, you have a proficient puncher. You yeah. have a guy who's been trained to, yeah. uh, uh, through, through the movement of their legs, through their, through their hips, into the shoulder to throw the most efficient, most effective punch repeatedly yeah. to, to the head. And then even in MMA as well too, that that maybe they're not as the refined boxers, but they st- and and they still they have hit gloves really on. Really hard. Still, then you get shredded. Yeah. You yeah. still get shredded. And if you take the and then in football, what is it? The helmet, the shoulder pads, and you take someone right. who's six foot eight, three hundred pounds, running at you, who can do the forty yard uh, dash in like you know in like. In, in Olympic time versus right. another guy who's also six foot eight, 300 pounds. They're colliding at pretty much the limits of like human um, potential. Yeah. And they're just bashing into each other. Oh, but it's safe because you, I, they have helmets on. Yeah. You know, you take that away it, in boxing. You take, uh, you take away the, the, the boxing gloves. And the argument is that they'd have to be a lot more precise or else uh, I was watching a, a, another uh, documentary on Netflix, Ice Guardians, and they mm-hmm. were talking about the, the, quote, goons or the enforcers that used to fight in hockey. Yeah. And every one of them, all of them, they said, oh, uh, I had surgery on this. I've broken this knuckle. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. And they showed the, uh, the, the study of, like, all the concussions and all the CTE. They thought it was 90% due to all the fighting, and they flipped it around where only like very, very little was due to the fighting. A lot of it was due to, you know, the cross checking the hits into the boards. And it's because, like, when they when they fight, especially in a hockey fight, a hockey fight's even dirtier because they're grabbing the jersey. Yeah. They're, they're, til- they're tilting their heads. I'm doing it right now. You can hear it in the audio. They're tilting their heads <laughs> in certain ways. So when they throw a fight, uh, they're, they're your bare knuckle right on the top of their head, breaking their own knuckles, yeah. defending themselves. That if you, if you, the, the long story short is the paradigm that in the public eye, padding equals safe. What we have found through all the research is that padding, especially with all, all the, the growth hormone and everything that goes with sports nowadays leads to serious uh, repercussions in the form of, as the latest study, CTE. You take away the padding, you take away certain, uh, quote, protection on them. They have to modify how they fight, which should, I mean, it's not going to solve everything. People are still going to get knocked out. They're probably still going to be like, like hits, 
I would like that. Maybe there's a, uh, I don't know what the study is with rugby. I would make, gather, there's probably a lower percentage of CT. I'm not sure. What do you think of that as far as, what if you do a modification to the rules a bit? Do you think that would... I, I think you're bringing up something which is really fascinating, but mm-hmm. I think would be scary for okay. uh, sports leagues. So I think if we were in a position where we let data drive our decisions about how sports are are um, basically ruled and uh, uniformed and uh, you know even how they're played, mm-hmm. I think we could probably take pretty violent sports and make them a lot safer. Mm-hmm. Like right off the bat, you, you, you raise a really interesting question. What if we did a long-term study of high contact sports involving really big bodies running very fast at each other and just measured them based on the amount of padding that they wear? So you bring up rugby. That's a great example. You could take rugby, uh, U.S. football, Irish rules football, Australian rules football, all kind of have a similar sort of um, uh, component in that, you know, the the massive collisions, right? Mm -hmm. You know, big bodies smashing into each other. But uh, only American football involves the shoulder pads and the, the, the helmets and all of that. Now, what if you did come away, and, and I don't know that you would, I don't know what the, what, what the data would tell us, mm-hmm. but they'd tell us something. What if you did come away suddenly realizing that the, the helmets themselves are allowing people to tee up and strike in a way that's more reckless and ultimately more dangerous than maybe somebody who's playing without those and has to rely a little more on technique and finesse and sort of timing, right? Would, would we change the game? You know, I mean, would we be willing to take that? Uh, you know, we, we talked about at the beginning, you know, the things we, we uh, know to start, but the things we don't know and we make our best guess and then we get there. Mm. I mean, if we're talking mm. about digital design, what do we always do? We always, at some point, we start out with heuristics. We say, let's get some smart people in a room and let's, get their thoughts on this. And that always gives you a good foundation, right? But then at some point, it all gets turned over to your end users. Ultimately, they are going to tell you what your product's going to be. I can go out there and I can design something that I think is as slick as goose shit, right? Mm -hmm. And I could put it out in front of them. And maybe some of the things they I get high marks on, but other things that I may have thrown in as just an add-on, they may actually find that to be the most useful thing. Now, we're going to pivot and suddenly that's going to become what we focus on. Well, are we willing to do that with something as, as critical as the health of our, our athletes, right? What if they did do some study that indicated that you were doing less damage with less padding? I know it seems counterintuitive, but you bring up something that was, I think, uh, a bombshell recently in the world of boxing. And that was a long-term study that showed that fighters who wore headgear had more concussions than fighters who didn't, you know, and... They're not 100% sure what the cause is. I think you're positing uh, a, a theory that's probably uh, as as good as any. Maybe, yeah, to, to my mind, it makes the most sense, which is that if I'm throwing a jab at you, I have a larger target. I'm making contact more often. Now, the padding isn't keeping your brain from bouncing against the front of nope. your skull. The concussion is still there. I mean, by the concussion, I'm referring to the blow, yep. you know, that concussive force, which could lead to 
a concussion, you know, if you get hit hard enough. But, but you know, for instance, they took headgear out of men's boxing in the Olympics, but they didn't take it out of women's boxing. I mean, you, you really have to wonder about the decisions. If we were, as a society, to just say, okay, let the data drive how these sports are played, would we be willing to do that? Or is there a part of us that just kind of likes the sort of, like, insane... Uh, element of football that that involves you know like two pickup trucks colliding at highway speed sort of impact you know i think it would probably be with uh, a bit of more as, as you said these these type of studies are being more like known to the public yeah not just between athletes now it's being it's trickling out further and further you're hearing this i'm sure if you do like a a, a google trend search that cte has, has like over there the course yeah. of the past year or whatever it just keeps on going up yeah. and up and up the the, the 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 headgear argument was just basically a bit based off of a little bit of intuition from um, that a concussion or it's essentially a knockout. It's when the, the brain, you know, floating in, in the fluid yeah. collides in the, the side of your skull, yeah. essentially leading to a knockout. And that doesn't have to happen, <clears throat> excuse me, from a straight on, like if, if, uh, if viewers here are at a desk and you just like, you know, what's that expression oh when someone says something dumb like you slam your head on the table <laughs> it doesn't have to be that if you notice in some uh in a lot of boxing it, it's it comes from a quick snap like whiplash yeah. whiplash can cause a knockout so if so if you're looking one way and someone just punches you on the jaw so you swing hard to the left or right really really fast and hard that's enough to send the skull crashing into uh the brain so I remember from from football, like one of the things we would do to pump each other up is not only like uh, you know like heads head, head, head smash, but people would grab the face mask and shake you like, yeah. "You ready? Are you ready?" But yeah. as they're shaking that face mask, they can shake it side to side as well too, and your head has yeah. to has to follow along. Yeah. So it goes the the same that if someone hits the punches your headgear in a certain way, they don't have to hit you like on on like your skull they don't have to hit you in the temple they could hit that headgear in a way which where it makes it like you're especially if it's fitted a certain way makes your head snap around even harder you're again, absolutely leading, right again leading into so what happens in lacrosse as well too they wear helmets foot obviously with football basically as you said it's counterintuitive when you say oh they have helmets on so it must uh uh protect them yeah it, it protects them in a way of the, the the like a direct blow and it visually looks safer yeah but you know that concussive force as you were saying a combination of that concussive force a combination of that whiplash it it, it leads to something where i'm hoping that the public gets educated on a little more because the fact that oh i want to see as you said like two behemoths yeah colliding yeah, but now, like, if we gave you the, the 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 knowledge that you know they do this enough, they're going to be brain dead, like literally brain dead within X amount of years, and you're just accelerating that. Do you really want that? You know, but that's a question we have to ask ourselves. I mean, let's be honest. We 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 would get a lot of people who would say that they are more than willing to risk someone else's brains. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I I I cannot tell you how nuts i get with people being tough guys with somebody else's health you know well, well people should be doing this or they should be doing that it's like this is them this isn't you right i mean you're just sitting there watching you're a spectator and you're talking about what it means to be tough you know 
if if we had i don't know if you guys uh listening or you know you yesterday saw this uh Ohio State Penn State game that, that they played last night. It was like one of the great college football games you'll ever see. And it was 39-38. Ohio State won oh, huge geez. comeback and you mm-hmm. know outscored them 19 to 3 in the fourth quarter. And it was like this amazing game. And I'm watching this thing, and it's funny you bring up all of this because I actually had a thought that popped into my head. Like if this game were different, like if the rules were different, if 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 the way it was played was different. Would this game be any less exciting? Like if you had a team pull way out in front and then another team come way back and in last minute or so, you know, score a touchdown in front of, you know, 80 or 100,000 fans who are screaming, going wild. And, you know, I'm out of my chair and everyone on TV is like raving about this. Would it be any less exciting if it were safer? You know, I, I mean, I sometimes feel like this sort of bloodlust component, the idea that somebody has to be getting injured, the, the idea that something, somebody has to be getting knocked out. I mean, this, this is a question we have to ask ourselves. I mean, is this the whole gladiatorial thing or is this really about the excitement of watching? You know, we got talking right at the beginning about things done really well at a really high level, you know, and how anything can be fascinating. But if we're watching people engage in a physical contest really athletic really skillful does it eliminate the fun if if you know we feel like they're a little bit safer the rules have been tweaked just a bit to reduce some of that and i don't know what the answer is i i i hate to say it the cynic in me says some people would be less interested in it Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think there is a certain amount of bloodlust that's that's driving the popularity of these sports but um I don't think that can be, as we move forward, I don't think that that can be the thing that we're focusing on. I mean, I, I think we have to focus on the, the health of the athletes. And uh, you know what? Maybe that'll create some underground fight club sort of thing. And these, you know, these, these, these people can get off their sofa and go, you know, down to the basement and drink their beer and watch people punch each other in the head, you know, with, with no rules. I, I don't know. But uh, I, I absolutely think that the idea of letting data drive some of these decisions is is going to be uh what gets us to a safer place and it's really cool that it, it you keep bringing back the, the the concept of well as that overall uh concept of agile and, and just doing mm-hmm. the best with with what we have yeah and it's kind of like what we're seeing here is we've hit um um a certain end of an iteration maybe or closing up to an iteration of this is how combat slash high impact sports here's here's like their yeah you know and now we're about to start up a a a new iteration especially with everything that's been going on with professional sports whether it be i don't know if you saw that documentary to icarus on netflix that one is an amazing one that is about the russian doping scandal the state-sponsored russian doping i've read a lot about that i haven't seen that documentary but i've been reading so much about that yeah amazing i would i would highly recommend that to you but it's again like what what do you do with um um athletes under uh performance enhancing drugs and not only that with this process in in place that is supposed to be anti you know peds and just how quote corrupt and how easy it is to get around it um you know you call into that question of of all right yeah these athletes are are doing these accomplishments at a high level they want to be doing it they will risk their bodies and lives to do it for the glory which is fine in my opinion, I, I would say, all right, sure. If you if you want to do that, and this is your decision, absolutely, go right ahead and, and do it. You know, controversial mm-hmm. in a way, but 
at a certain point, then the gray area becomes here you are. All right. You've won your gold medal in, in said sport. You've won the championship in said sport. You're quote, a role model now. And now people start looking up to you and now they follow you on Instagram, social media, and they see that you're, Oh, look at you. You're, you're six foot eight, 300 pounds shredded, or you're a, a female fighter and you're, and you're shredded as, as well too. And you can, and you post things. Oh, I train five times a day, but yeah. not telling them that you take this special uh, recovery, uh, you know, drug that lets you train five times a day. Right. Exactly. And then kids are looking up to you and then other people are, you, you basically have done the thing of like, uh, you know, uh, people yell at magazines, fashion magazines. Oh, you set an impossible standard. They literally are yeah. at that point an impossible standard, you know? So that's its own gray area. I don't know what's going to come. P it, it, it's very much tied into the same fundamental questions, you know, uh, tolerating PEDs, uh, tolerating, a certain amount of uh, head injuries. I mean, it really comes down to, I think, questions that we have to ask ourselves about um, the purity of sport. But honestly, I would probably say that I'm less concerned about PEDs in terms of um, uh, whether or not they taint records and things like that. I'm 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 much more interested in in how they can how they can make sports more dangerous. Mm. I mean, like. Honestly, if somebody if somebody's using anabolic steroids and they're in a striking sport, I throw them in jail. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, that's like that's insane, right? Blood doping, uh, other that's the, uh, that's the thing Lance Armstrong did, right? Yeah. So what they're doing is they're increasing the amount of uh, blood cells that go into their system, and 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 combat athletes have used that too. Boxers mm -hmm. have used it. It's one of the w things that allows you to train five times a day, mm -hmm. right? Uh, no human being can train that much. We all know. I mean, sports scientists know, doctors know. You put your body through a period of stressful activity, and it breaks it down, and then it has to recover, and then you put it in again. You you put in the same stressful activity again, and you can get to a point where you can speed the recovery a certain amount, but you cannot eliminate it. Now, when you get people who are doing three, four, five hard sessions in a day, those are PEDs. They may not be anabolic. It may not be increasing the force with which you can throw a punch, but I mean, listen, you train. What if you could get like, you know, you have a job and a, a wife and a kid and all this. What if you could just get seven hours a day on the mat? Like what mm -hmm. would that do to your game? Absolutely. Now, what, what if you could not only get on the mat, but you could work full out like mm -hmm. like you would in the first hour but you could do that three or four or five times not have to worry about soreness muscle soreness exactly you don't come in the next day and you feel like you know you're you you have you know weights on your your limbs you know I feel you, that after you, one yeah, session these exactly days. <laughs> exactly but imagine like if you came in and you felt like you know mm -hmm. you had just taken a week off and you know you'd been sitting in a hot tub the whole time i mean if you could do that every day think of what you would get out of it you know if you could train at high intensities all the time and that's what they're doing so um, I, I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I yep. you know, the PEDs are, are, are tricky. I do know that when it comes down to, you know, combat sports or any sports that involves any sport that involves impact, mm -hmm. 
you have to be really, really strict in regulating those because let, let's face it, you know, the amount of force that you can generate when you are using anabolic substances goes up considerably. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had, you know, 15, 20% on the amount of impact you can generate. That That's the difference between, you know, knocking someone out and maybe killing them. Yeah. What I am seeing too, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm reading about it and I'm also somewhat uh, for it as far as like you are starting to see, Due to the, the type of these studies, especially with CT, you're probably going to see an increase in the number of uh, people that are six foot eight, two hundred fifty pounds plus in baseball and in basketball. As you can, as you already see with like uh, uh, Aaron, Aaron Judge, uh, Aaron Judge yeah. of just, just imagine now, like, all right, let's take this your physical potential as an athlete, just put it all into a baseball swing, <laughs> just hit eight hundred foot home runs. You know, you're you have to play a lot of games. But, yeah. you know, unless the guy's throwing right at your head, which is, you know, they, it's there. It's highly, you know, the, um, uh, they regulate that and, and they did highly discourage it and penalize that type of behavior. But you just get up there. Ah, what's the worst that happens? You strike out, you yeah. know, what's the best that can happen? You are, you, you win the home run derby just yeah. because. Of it. So I'm hoping that, um, that. That, as you said, like a little bit of data driven, also a little bit of monetary driven, like, oh, where did all my, our, our money go? Well, that's because you're the, the best, like biggest highlight athletes have gone to other sports due to the, uh, can you imagine a six foot eight, 250 pound Tiger Woods? Can you imagine that? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh we, my God. We'll, we'll get that at some point. We, you know, at some, at some point we'll get, you know, somebody, it, we get that all the time in sports where you get, you know, sort of the, um, the breakthrough athlete who sort of redefines everything. I mean, I. I'm I'm uh, old enough that the golden age of heavyweights for me were you know guys who weren't even that much bigger than I am. I mean mm-hmm. you know I mean t- I'm talking about in terms of height. I mean Muhammad Ali at, at you know between six two and six three towered over everybody. You know uh, nowadays you know Anthony Joshua and uh, Adrian Broner and uh, not Adrian Broner. Um, uh, uh, oh, Vladimir Klitschko, mm-hmm. Vitaly Klitschko, um, Deontay Wilder. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name of our current U.S. heavyweight champion, Deontay Wilder. These these guys stand six 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 seven six eight, right? I mean the 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 age of the you know super heavyweight is is here, mm-hmm. right? I think it started with Lennox Lewis uh, mm-hmm. a number of years back, and and uh, now there's been a you know, I, I think Lennox Lewis kind of created a blueprint and then uh, Vladimir and Vitaly Klitschko really extended that blueprint, right? The idea that if you are a skilled big man, and I think this is where you were going with, you know, talk, talking about Aaron Judge and, you know, the potential, you know, like six foot eight Tiger Wood, you know, they'll, they'll be able to do things that, you know, no one six one six two could do even if they're highly skilled, right? So, you know, Lewis used to live behind this incredible jab, and so you couldn't get in on him, and then he would just pick you apart with shots whenever, whenever you know, there was an opening. And uh, bigger and bigger guys came along and, and followed that blueprint, and now the heavyweight division just looks like they're behemoths, right? So uh, there, there's always going to be some trends like that, but um, I'm still enough of a romantic to believe that, you know, you will also still continue to get these sort of uh, breakout athletes who sort of mm-hmm. defy all the odds and, you Absolutely. know, just, you know, really, uh, I think, help to 
evolve the games that they're in. I mean, I, I still see MMA fighters and boxers right now who I, I just admire so much. And they don't seem to necessarily, I mean, they have gifts. Clearly, they're all gifted athletes. But I think about like Johanna Yerchechik, you know, and mm-hmm. I mean, what she's what she's brought, not just to, to women's MMA, but to MMA in general, like the real ascension of just a super, super high level striker who, who can, uh, you know, take the best uh, athletes with their well-rounded skill sets or even, you know, uh, uh, skill sets in other areas, like maybe they're very strong wrestlers or very strong BJJ practitioners, and she just imposes her will on them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, I, I love the big, fancy, home run hitting super athletes, but I, I still love, you know, I'm going to steal the term from your and Adam session. Uh, I, I still love the grinders. I still yes. love... You know, I still love the folks who get out there and and just really, they 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 move the game forward just through like sheer determination. You know, and 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 and, and that's a beautiful thing. And I mean, I I, I definitely I still see a lot of fighters uh, out there who who fall into that category too. So, you mentioned uh, several terms here that I'd like to pivot off of the the subject of of martial arts and sports in general. You throw in romantic, and you throw in your your eyes light up when you start think when you start talking about technique and you start talking about like literally the the underdog mm-hmm. or the grind or that hard work that comes into play. And it, it was a fact about you that I learned after. Uh, we beat the crap out of each other in jujitsu and and with striking and in boxing that you are a playwright mm-hmm. and that um, why don't you talk a little bit uh, about that because I would love to hear a little bit more about how you how that affects what you would say as um, as I would say that your analytical mind and your approach to um, process because process analytical step by step by step but then there's a probably a bit of of artistry as you would as i would put it how would you put it if it's influenced in it oh uh, <laughs> so it's a strong pivot i apologize a, yeah, if it no is. It's, it's it's a good question i mean it's a it's a question that i i have not answered fully in my life you know but it, i ask i ask it a lot right um i i was uh uh my, my father uh, was a a very well-known theater director and uh he was hired at rutgers and uh, uh to head up their theater department um in the early 1970s and he went on to become the founding dean of the mason gross school of the arts wow. which today is one of the top three or four performing yes. arts uh colleges on the planet mm-hmm. uh and uh you know it it uh it, it was always a and my mother was a an actress. She still teaches uh, a film course here in Montclair that's extremely popular. She's you know I, I have a a family that you know has that arts background, but um, it was a very big part of my life. And I I uh, even even though I'm working in in digital now, I actually got my my BFA in in acting and uh, went on to become a playwright and uh, wrote for many many years and. Uh, uh, it, it, it never really leaves you, you know, it, uh, I feel like it's still influencing who I am and everything I do today. Um, I, I think probably the one thing I, I haven't figured it all out. Maybe in a couple of years we'll get together and we'll talk, talk again. It and maybe, talk talk may- it out. Uh, you know, your, your first iteration. Yeah. Here. Maybe, maybe I'll, maybe I'll have like more answers then. But, but the one thing that I know that, um, being a playwright requires is, um, uh, 
you have to you have to put on other people's shoes right you have to it, mm. it, it's like a, it's an exercise in a kind of a an extreme empathy uh you know you you are writing about people who um someone on the outside might look at them and think they're monsters or they're idiots or they're this or they're that i mean you know they're people who and one of the one of the beauties of playwriting is to present something at the beginning that completely changes by the end of the play right mm -hmm. so you know you you give people sort of um a character or a situation or an event and you know they have an immediate point of view about it but then you start to peel away the layers and you start to dissect it and suddenly there are understandings and insights on the part of the audience into why this happened or who these people are, you know, what brought them to this point. And if you're successful, you can, I think, help bridge the gap in a lot of the assumptions that get made, right? So mm -hmm. if, if you can look at somebody where you start with one opinion of them and then by the end of the play, you have a completely different opinion of them. Uh, I, I think that that's something that we could all benefit from is the acknowledgement that there may be more to somebody than what you just initially think. But, but in order to, in order to really understand that you, you have to place yourself into the minds of some people that even as a writer, you may not particularly like, or you may not want to go, but then you have to start to say, okay, people who do these sorts of things they are people they they're do human. have they do have motivations mm -hmm. they're not waking up in the morning going think i'm going to be a shithead today <laughs> you know like like they have something they, they have something driving them and they have a point of view mm -hmm. and in order to in order to write about them and to make them real characters and not to make them just stereotypes or caricatures you mm. you you have to you have to enter into that way of thinking and so uh, it's it's an exercise in empathy, and uh, honestly, I, there there's no area of my life where I don't think there's some benefit in in having a, a deeper understanding of the people around you. You know, um, uh, it's made me more humble. You know, I I don't ever presume to just get somebody right off the bat. Uh, you know, I I I. I think if if you are if you are assuming that there are layers and layers and layers behind anyone you're meeting, um, it puts the pressure on you to be open to them and to what's there, rather than you know assuming they have to somehow come to you and and sell you on their merits as a person, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and um, that's that's changed me a lot. I mean, I. I um, it that that wasn't like oh i started playwriting and that all came along that that was um there were there were a lot of uh uh there were a lot of experiences i had as a writer that were driven by a lot of experiences i had as a person there was you know uh some some fun things but there was also some periods in my life of uh extreme loss and 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 you know uh dealing with that and uh i mean i've had uh loss in my family i lost a couple of brothers to suicides and i mean you have some real dark nights of the soul trying to you know understand what what's going through their minds and and, mm. and then trying to understand what's going through your own mind in the aftermath of all that right and uh writing can sometimes allow you to take and put it out on a table and say okay let me examine this objectively and then i'm not suffering actively right i'm actually working on it mm. But uh, really what you're doing uh, throughout all of it is, is um, 
sharpening your ability to sort of um, consider other positions and other people's um, other people's experiences and to value them all, right? So, uh, I mean, now I do digital design and I made a decision to move away from writing that had to do with my family and, mm-hmm. and you know, the need to, you know, put food on the table fairly regularly. But, um, you know, I still feel like I'm, I'm always whether whether i'm in a, a room with somebody who's who's upset about something and we're trying to work through it i'm still trying to understand where they're coming from and speak to their needs and if it's something we're designing for an end user i'm still trying to think of of their needs and it, it's absolutely a theme which is has touched on everything and i mean it's a beautiful thing in and of itself too i mean it, it writing and theater i mean you, you meet a lot of kooks and and weirdos but you know they're they're wonderful people who are out there trying to tell some stories and they're very expressive and i I, I love them deeply, and you know now I'm working with tech folk who are mm. you know very very different. They're their own different type yeah, of kooky. Yeah, they and, are. You but, know? but 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 you know, once once you kind of see past that kook part, you know, you're, you're meeting good people everywhere, and so yes. yeah, it's uh, it's it was an interesting background, but I, I I don't regret any of it, and I don't think I could be doing the things I'm doing now without you know having taken all those steps. So wonderful to tie. Back to you a little bit, Warren. Um, it was interesting that Ben was bringing up that bit of extreme empathy and also putting yourself uh, more into the other person's shoes, whoever it is that yeah. I, I guess that you are writing about or trying to quote tell their story. And I do remember an experience I had most most recently that it's interesting when you talk about like peeling away the layers because you just really never know. Um, the motivations behind someone before like as something as simple as well i won't say simple in this mm-hmm. day and age i was talking to one of my friends and he had a certain uh political affiliation yeah and it was interesting to me just because a lot of his other ideas and the way that he acted and the way that he behaved through his actions i would have figured he would have been of another political yeah. affiliation yeah Upon a good long talk, something similar to that you and I are doing, ben, yeah, just really honest, just really not jumping down each other's throats of like, oh, why do you think that way? Because uh, because that's a stupid way of thinking about it. Right. Or why do you think that way? You must be a insert this ist ist yeah. to yeah. it. It turned out that my friend had a very um, personal vendetta against a, a family member. Who had done him wrong like really done him wrong really really done him wrong to the point where that family member was of the other p- political affiliation and my friend said um i don't want to see him happy at all and i asked him about how much of your percentage of your current political affiliation has to do with that family member with, without even without even hesitating, oh, at least seventy to eighty percent. Wow. Yeah. So it made me realize a little more that there's all there's so much more behind it. Now, if you take that as something as divisive as uh, these days as political affiliation, you talk about anything that anything else that they could possibly identify with their religion. You can uh, think about what sport they play, why they decided to go into a jujitsu or why they decided to start boxing. And you can't just immediately assume the, oh, they've come into jujitsu for a workout. They've come into boxing to increase their stand up 
uh, potential. Yeah, they they are of this political affiliation because they have this color and or they live on this region. The fact that you enjoy and you've applied, uh, what was that? The transference of skill. I think that's what you called it. Yeah, and that ability for you to be a playwright and to read and to read into a person to peel away the layers, especially a, a, a mechanism of like creating a story to tell the story of that person yeah. to peel away that much layers. I think is an invaluable tool that I think certain people just probably don't take the time to do for, you know, they, it, it, I guess, I guess it's probably just a lot easier Warren. It's probably a lot easier for you to just, Oh, that person's a dumb, dumb. That's why they, they think this way. Oh, this person is, you know? Yeah. <laughs> there was a joke went back many years. They said, you know, uh, why am I prejudiced? Because it saves time. You know, it, it, it was like, it, <laughs> yep. it, 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 it's easy. Right. But, um, uh, yeah, it, I, I, who knows, who knows why people mm -hmm. get sort of in these kind of intractable positions. And I mean, yep. we're looking at a, an environment right now where intractability is, is mm -hmm. creating real uh, problems in terms of having like really, um, I think productive conversations, but, uh, I do know that uh, uh, I, I had a background where, uh, you know, m maybe at the time some of these things were scary and uncertain, but I've been thrown in a lot of different um, situations. I, I mean, I, I've been uh, uh, in, in, I've moved around a lot as a kid and I was in, uh, you know, all white schools. I was in all black schools. I was literally in a school where it was all black except for me, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in Chicago in the 60s and, you know, it's scary times. And, uh, uh, you know, I've moved around a lot. I moved from, uh, Chicago to Ohio to New Jersey. Uh, you know, I've been exposed to a lot of different things, a lot of different influences. Um, uh, maybe, maybe this was, you know, all of it was an, ad an advantage ultimately. Right. Because I mean, I, I, uh, I've just come to the point where, um, I love your story about your friend who, you know, it, chooses a political affiliation to spite his brother, you know, uh, that that's kind of a play right there. I could take that, you know, and say, okay, we could turn this into, you know, a, a, a cool one act play. Right. But, uh, it, it, I, I guess I'm just going to make the point I made before, but, uh, I think it's something that we should advocate for a little more. I mean, the, at the point where you can start to uh, give other people the benefit of the doubt and uh, maybe try to even do more than they do in terms of looking past um, uh, where they are to maybe how they got there. I think the more we may have a basis for conversation. That being said, I mean, I have a couple of lines in the sand that I don't cross. I mean, when, when people, you know, when, when people start to talk about, um, I mean, we, we get into the, you know, talk about the ists when, when we, when we start to talk about entire groups of people being, you know, substandard or this or that, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I just draw a line in the sand. I think there's like a certain, there, there are certain principles that you know, mm -hmm. we just, we have to stand up for and we have to fight for and we have to, you know, there's certain behaviors we can't tolerate, but even as we, as we protect those and as we stand firm against that kind of belief, I, I, th I still think we can lay a foundation for maybe changing that kind of rhetoric and changing that kind of thinking moving forward but it's got to be built on empathy mm -hmm. and uh like anything else that's something you have to get good at i mean i can't just say to you be empathetic <laughs> now go 
give me 10, you know, it's, uh, it, 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 it takes a long time. And I mean, I know in my life, like I, I, I spent many years being pissed off and I was, you know, road rage and, you know, bitter about where I was. And oh, I where still I wasn't. Yeah. Jersey city rush yeah. hour traffic. Come on. <laughs> All right. I'll give you Jersey city rush hour traffic, <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think, I think we have to, you know, it's, it's kind of like that question I was, I was, you asked me and I was sort of positing an answer about in regards to when is too, you know, certain behavior too much regarding kids. Yes. And you have to mm-hmm. ask that hard question. But I think those, those moments of introspection are, are key for, uh, getting us all to a better place. I mean, we, we really have to start to ask ourselves sometimes is this, is this because we really think this is a better position or is this just, is this emotional or intellectual laziness? I mean, am I just like being lazy? Is it easier to just say, you know, fine, I'm thinking this way or am, am I really, you know, am I, am I really doing this because I think this is better, not only for me, but for everyone else. Mm. Uh, again, you know, humility and introspection. I, I think these are, you know, these, they, these, these aren't things you get, uh, you, you hear talked about a lot, but I, I think they are, are, are key qualities to our getting to a, a more, uh, productive kind of dialogue across our society. Absolutely. And with all that, we pretty much hit two hours, Ben, an amazing two hours that just flew because, um, I, 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 I'm, I've been saying it recently now, but I've been, I, I've been saying that I always try to push on this podcast. I always try to push out outside of my, outside of my comfort zone. Yeah. And even, even just in, in topics of even asking, as you said, that question, because if you ain't pushing, you aren't learning. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't even know if there was, there's no right or wrong answer to that question. Oh, how, how much is too far to, to, to push your kid? It's just more yeah. so just bring up that question. Let's see yeah. um, w- where it goes. And I think we ended on a beautiful message, one, as always, uh, with empathy and just, you know, reaching out, cross, uh, crossing the line as in, you know, you know uh, what is it? Extend a hand yeah. across the line, extend an olive branch. Yeah. And there are, but yes, as you said, for everyone, as as individuals, there there's some things that no one will ever, uh, you know, budge on because that's just who who they are. That's yeah. probably what my friend had had to do when yeah. he was getting wronged by a family <laughs> member. But in the end, I really want to thank you for your your time, Ben. You you kept me on my toes because always a very I love having these um, um, analytical discussions, whether it be about sports, whether it be about whiskey. Well, I want to say thank you because, uh, you know, I love what you're doing with the show. Uh, and you know, I love you. I love Jess. I love Warren. Uh, you're, you're wonderful people and, and, uh, getting a chance to talk to you about all these things is a true pleasure. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. And I hope to have you on again soon for uh, maybe when another crazy fight happens. You're like, oh my God, we've got to talk about this next time. <laughs> we'll go time. full on Joe yes. Rogan and just talk about the fights. Yes, so. absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks, Zach.